The information provided by Munro Partners is for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decision. Hello and welcome to the Invest in the Journey podcast. My name is Taylor Bree Casey and in today's episode we'll be chatting about the big development in the US with the passing of the recent Inflation Reduction Act, which despite its name is actually more of a climate bill. At Munro, we have exposure to the climate thematic in our long short and long only funds and of course the Climate Leaders Fund. So positive climate related government policy can be a structural tailwind for all of our funds. To discuss, I am joined by Munro's two resident experts, partner, portfolio manager and climate co-lead James Tasindis and responsible investment manager Mike Haroot. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Tom. It's great to have you both on to chat through such major news. Mike, perhaps you could start us off by enlightening us firstly to the naming of the bill and then the background to the recent US climate policy and then finally outline some of the key climate elements. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, despite its name around uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, really the the primary impact we think for it is around climate change. So this was something that was uh, quite a surprise really to the to the markets uh, in the last uh, c- couple of weeks. And it's recently passed the US Senate, which is really the key, kind of key hurdle uh, to its um, passage ultimately through then the House and then uh, the, the ultimate sign-off by president so really the I think for us the the, the key elements are around um, re- renewable energy credits so that includes things like solar and and wind so credits around the production of energy from that as well as actually investment in the you know in the in those assets so the the the, the key aspect there is that we've, we've gone from a situation where historically it's been a sort of a two to three year, um, credit environment, which which gives, I guess, less of that sort of policy certainty for um, for investments in, in this area to now essentially having 10 years and perhaps even longer than 10 years of policy certainty around um, around investments in this in this area. So we think it will really spur a lot more uh, investment and opportunity uh, in in those areas. Probably just some of the other things that I briefly just touch on are. One of the things that we see, you know, beyond the kind of traditional renewables that that is in there is around um, support for nuclear energy, which is a source of carbon-free energy generation, as well as things like um, carbon capture and storage, which, you know, which is a way to, I suppose, reduce the carbon impact of existing you know, industrial processes and so forth. So increasing those thresholds increases the uh, number of things which, for which it's economically viable essentially to have um, carbon capture and storage um, being done. So those are probably some of the, yeah, the initial things that I'd you know, point out around um, the clean energy side. They all sound like positive tailwinds. James, uh, the companies that are in our climate area of interest, are they just relying on government policy to, uh, to support their success? Yeah, it's a good question. As Mike sort of mentioned, this is really helpful. It sort of came, we didn't expect this to happen. Um, obviously, after the last election in the US, um, we did think that there was going to be a build back better. 
um, bill come through and, and, and the market was disappointed and the companies were disappointed when that actually didn't look like it was going to happen. And thankfully at least now we've got something um, in the last couple of weeks and it did sort of uh, come out of uh, left field a bit. We didn't expect this but uh, it's definitely a welcome surprise. Um, so, so it's very helpful. Um, would this have happened anyway? Yes, it would have but it probably would have just taken longer. Um, we know it would have happened anyway because <clears throat> we know that's important to companies um, from their ESG perspective but also from all of their stakeholders to actually go green um, and set these net zero targets. So we were very comfortable that all these wind solar projects that Mike just sort of talked about, carbon capture, we, we did we were comfortable that it was going to happen eventually but, but this just speeds it up as Mike said because it just becomes more economic. Yeah, and the other thing I suppose to point out would be that these – in a lot of places in the world it's actually already beneficial to to shift um, this clean energy to clean energy. <clears throat> That's simply because the cost of gas and coal is um, is actually above solar and wind in, in a lot of places around the world. And so that's why we were comfortable that, that this would have happened anyway. But, but, but as we said, it, it just happens sooner. Um, obviously what we're seeing in the world today around – power prices, commodity prices, et cetera, that just actually means that we transition quicker. Um, so the higher, the simple way to think about it, the higher the oil price, the higher the price of the petrol pump, probably the sooner you're going to buy an EV. Um, similar with coal and gas on the utility side as well. The, the more expensive the gas, the quicker you're going to try to build um, renewables, obviously particularly in Europe at the moment, given the uh, energy situation there, particularly with the Russian gas. And so climate change is a like a worldwide topic, what does the Inflation Reduction Act mean for other countries' targets ahead of COP27? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question and I suppose we, you know, we don't have a, a crystal ball. So obviously COP27 happening later this year in uh, Egypt, it's obviously the, uh, the latest round of negotiations around implementing the Paris Agreement. So that really, the, you know, this, this act helps the US, you know, they've set their target of, 50 to 52 percent reduction by 2030 and this act really helps them to actually it gives the the u.s economy the the market signals really to 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 achieve that and so we really think that you know diplomatically with the u.s being such a um obviously such a large global economy and and having its um you know with diplomatic power i suppose it really gives them a um a stronger impetus to really um nudge other countries along and really, you know, these, these you know, a COP27 and previous iterations and future iterations are all opportunities for countries to, you know, come to the, come to the you know, international negotiating table and continue to, um, you know, really ratchet up their ambitions around climate change. So, yeah, we really think this gives the US an, uh, a stronger hand to try to influence uh, other countries as well, which is positive. And certainly, you know, one of the things that one of the, I suppose, more emerging technologies in in um, in this bill is around, for example, hydrogen. And so, one of the other things that you can potentially see happening is, as that if that industry develops in the in the US, it becomes more of a proven technology, and that can be you know that that technology and that know how can be exported globally as well. So that's probably another probably less direct um, impact uh, potentially as well over time. So at Monroe, we've noted that uh, decarbonising the planet could cost up to $50 trillion, and some have said it, uh, as high as $100 trillion. The bill or government policy more generally appears to have a clean energy focus. 
Could you talk to how this bill may impact Munro's other climate sub-areas of interest? Yeah, so um, you're right. It probably does impact the clean energy side the most and that's where we're seeing the, the, the best um, upside from a stock perspective at the moment and certainly that's how the, those stocks have reacted. Um, it's, it's reacted more in that sort of clean energy side um, of our portfolios. Um, but we do think it more broadly assists the other sort of areas that we're looking at. So um, I did sort of mention the EV side. So there's some stuff for EVs in this bill um, around credits as well. So um, that's helpful from a demand perspective, although the biggest company obviously in the space, Tesla, doesn't really have a demand problem, but um, certainly uh, it certainly helps there as well. Um, on the energy efficiency side, so we do also invest here. So um, a lot of carbon obviously comes from buildings. Um, it's one of the primary sources of um, investment that we expect, about a quarter of that $50 trillion. Um, And there is some... Um, some things for uh, building renovations in there as well. So speeding up the renovation cycle to make those buildings more efficient um, obviously helps a lot of the companies that we invest in in this space. So we have investments in insulation companies, heating and cooling companies, electrical companies, et cetera. And so that's a, that's a nice tailwind from, from that perspective. Um, also, uh, we do see a big opportunity in the circular economy. Um, so that's just basically using the resources that we have today, whether it be land, raw materials, um, et cetera, more efficiently, um, recycling more um, or getting a better yield from from the piece of land that we're farming. Um, and there is some um, elements in in the bill um, for agriculture as well. So that, that should support our agricultural investments um, as well. So, yeah, so there's, some, there's something there for the other areas, but I, I would say that um, – and certainly what we're seeing is that the, um, the most exciting part is actually, as Mike sort of laid out at the front, it's actually that sort of 10-year-plus certainty on the clean energy side. So um, that's where we have been, I suppose, lifting our exposure for the fund. So maybe just a slight uh, change in topic, but the one we always get, Mike, uh, or we're getting a lot of questions about from clients – is obviously the big news. Well, every day is a big news day for Tesla. Um, but uh, we obviously had them, or S&P actually obviously excluded them from some of the ESG uh, indices. So that caused a bit of uh, consternation. Um, you know, you're our responsible investment manager and you've spoken to the company numerous times. Um, what, what, what's your view on all of that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, question, James. So I guess maybe to sort of backtrack briefly, we we obviously you know, we've built out our own internal uh, ESG, I suppose, scoring mechanism, which directly feeds into our um, valuation process. And as you say, engagement is a big part of that too. So, so yeah. So the the, the story, I suppose, for for, for those that haven't um, completely followed it, was uh, yeah, Exxon, sorry, Tesla was removed from the S and P ESG indices. I think in uh, this year and um, Exxon was added. And so one of the challenges, um, one of the, the rationale there was that Tesla apparently didn't have a low, low a net zero transition plan or something along those lines. Um, so we, we, we obviously uh, well disagreed with that before even engaging with um, Tesla because the emissions footprint of a Tesla vehicle or you know, electric vehicles is half if not if not um, less than half of the emissions from an internal combustion engine car so 
Now we we engage with Tesla um, on that on that issue, and just to understand, you know, what that um, what that was all about. I think there are some gaps potentially around Tesla not having its own operational net zero target. But again, the actual impact of their vehicles, even if they are made in factories that do have um, a carbon footprint themselves, and we think is a, a net benefit, sort of positive impact in terms of uh, climate change, which again, probably is the rationale for why there are obviously you know, tax credits for a company like Tesla, uh, which are, as you say, being extended uh, through this bill. I mean, one of, one of the things for us with a company like Tesla, again, ESG is not just E. So one of the things that we've been focusing on with that company is around the battery supply chain and in particular you know, some of the minerals which come from I suppose you know global regions where there's uh, challenges around human rights. So cobalt being the kind of key battery mineral in that in that respect. So yeah, we, we we've engaged with Tesla on that topic. Uh, they actually source the majority of their cobalt directly, which gives them a lot more transparency around uh, you know, how that's actually uh, how that's actually being mined and so forth. They also you know, gave us quite a lot of transparency around the uh, audits that they do, either direct or uh, through third parties of their of their supply chain as well. So certainly something that we continue to, I guess, be wary of and, and engage on. But, um, yeah, something I think we're, we're getting a little bit more comfort around over time. And that's really the sort of the benefit of being an active manager with the ability to engage yourself uh, with companies is that you can actually, you know, you're not reliant on third-party views you can actually you do actually have the resources and cap capacity to um, look at these issues yourself and, and, and come to your own view and, and I think that's what we've done in this case um, just one, one back to you James you know obviously uh, Tesla is a uh, quite an expensive uh, stock in terms of the, the valuation and you know they, they've been building cars I don't know for about, about a decade whereas many of the traditional OEMs have been making cars for you know, probably a hundred years in 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 some cases. Um, and one of the questions that I think we we, we always do get asked is around you know, how can you know what's what's sort of so special about Tesla and how, you know despite the them having the start around um, you know, mass uh, production of electric vehicles, what makes what makes us think that they will continue to sort of uh, lead lead the others, especially given the you know the, the very expensive uh, valuation it seems. Of, company yeah good question i mean the first place to start with that would be you just look at the total addressable market of the autos market it's by far the biggest market in the world um and so they don't actually have to make every single car in the future to be the biggest company in the world they just have to maintain a reasonable share they're obviously above 20 percent market share of evs today globally you know, if they can maintain 10 to 20 percent they're going to be the biggest company in the world they already have margins of 20 percent um, because they are an EV first company and they've been able to vertically integrate. Um, and so they are much more efficient than the um, the legacy OEMs. Um, and basically um, they do produce a better product with a higher customer perception. So w our view would be that they will be able to maintain that share. And over time they'll be able to add on additional services the same way Apple has in smartphones. Um, and so they'll be able to continue to... Um, to, to grow that margin as well. So they'll be a very profitable company in the future as well. 
um, they're already far more profitable than their, than their peers. So um, I think that's very interesting. Um, I mean, just on that, I mean, the way to think about it, the analogy that we always think about is Apple. Um, and so Apple is 80% of the profits um, in, in, in its industry in smartphones, um, despite it being sort of 20% of the market share. So if you think about that sort of scenario and if that would happen in autos, and autos is a 5x market of smartphones by sort of dollar value, more than 5x, then um, that sort of lets the mind wander as to how big um, how big Tesla could possibly be. Now, obviously, there's a lot that they've got to do right to get to that point. Um, so it's by no means um, a slam dunk, and that's why we have to manage the position. Um, and obviously, we know that the position is very volatile because it is a high valuation stock. Um, but at least it does have earnings, um, unlike some of the other sort of tech stocks that have been hit you know, over the last sort of 18 months or so that, that don't have earnings. So we, we wouldn't put it in that sort of same category as those sort of momentum, high momentum stocks that have now collapsed. Um, there is actually something for us to hang our hat on. And obviously, as we look out in the future, there's, um, there is a very um, a rich opportunity set for the, for the company and we think uh, that they'll, uh, yeah, we think they're here to stay and <clears throat> we, we, do, we are in the camp that they are going to be able to hold that market share or at least hold a decent market share over time. I might jump back in there and we might finish off with a bit more of a, a light-hearted question. So our climate fund is a 15 to 25 stock portfolio. I want to know what is your favourite idea right now? Mike, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, partly from a ESG perspective, but I think just generally from a stock perspective, the company that I um, highlight is RWE, which is a German utility. And this is certainly a company that... Um, today is not really an ESG champion. So they're a utility, but they do have a legacy uh, coal uh, business, which you know, in Germany, especially given the current environment, um, is probably being run harder than it otherwise would be. And one of the interesting things, though, is in terms of the company's actual plans for the future, you know, all of their, you know, pretty much all of their capital expenditure is in uh, renewables, uh, and aligned to the EU taxonomy, they've got some uh, strong targets around decarbonising their, uh, their their fleet, essentially. And then one of the other benefits that we see is potentially the um, essentially those coal assets being sp- split off into um, a separate foundation, essentially overseen in some way uh, by the, by the German government. So. Yeah, it's an interesting stock. You know, there, I think there are today many ESG investors um, who don't uh, don't invest in that company just because of its coal exposure. But you know, we're sort of trying to look forward around what what that company will look like in in a, in a year or two, um, and and really that there's a big difference in terms of its um, valuation, in terms of its multiple between it and some of its peers who are, let's say, a little bit further down, down that um, down that path. So we actually do see an opportunity there in terms of its um, re-rating as it continues to uh, decarbonise as well. So that's probably the one that I would pick. Fantastic. And I guess we do have that ability to include companies like that because it's not an ESG product per se. Correct. And Correct. James, what is your pick? I like all the stocks, Taylor. Um <laughs> Uh, you have to pick one. You, if you're going to twist my arm, I'd say, well, look, we've talked about this Inflation Reduction Act and, um, you know, that it is a clean energy sort of slanted 
um, situation here. There are, as I mentioned, some tailwinds for other parts of our portfolio, like the building materials and so forth. But um, but yeah, on the clean energy side, uh, one thing that this is really helpful for is a company called Vestas, uh, which is a Danish company. It's the leading onshore wind turbine company in the world. I've actually invested in this company on and off for over 15 years. Nick, uh, Nick sort of invested in this one prior to the GFC. Back then there was dozens or probably a dozen of these companies and over time this industry has become um, consolidated because of what Mike said earlier about this sort of two to three year cycle, just so many went out of business. Um, but now the technology is, uh, is economic relative to fossil fuels, um, certainly um, onshore. Um, and offshore is is growing as well, or will be growing um, as well. So, yeah, this is really very helpful for, for this company um, in terms of getting that certainty um, for their customers to go and build these wind, wind farms. Um, so, yeah, we, we see a big tailwind in the US. We also see a big tailwind in Europe. Um, you know, RWE will be a big customer um, as the German government tries to get off Russian gas and, 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 and this will be really helpful best us in Europe as well. Um, the stock for us has been one we've had to manage over the last couple of years because, you know, there was that disappointment around build back better <coughs> despite the underlying demand for from, from companies to shift to win. Um, but there's also been obviously the pandemic as well and that's been really tough for this company um, because the logistical situation, supply chain, it's been, a, it's been, it's been very, very difficult. So, And is know, that why it's not one of our top five at the yeah, so we've been managing it as a as a smaller position in the fund, um, in the climate fund, and and it's been sort of in and out of the long short fund and the long early fund. It's it's a stock that we've made a lot of. Um, it's been really good for us in the past, but it's one that we've had to leave um, and come back to. Um, and so, yeah, it is a position that I think will get bigger um, as these sort of challenges, hopefully, touch wood. You know, the pandemic challenges sort of start to. Um, get in the review mirror uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, um, yeah, the outlook re- looks really, really good for this company um, to get back to its margins that it's had in the past uh, when all that sort of disappears. Um, and we just talked about, you know, we've obviously just talked about the demand um, picture now. It looks really, really attractive for both the onshore wind and, and the offshore. And, and the offshore wind will be potentially quite massive in the US because uh, the US hasn't even started here. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Watch this space. Well, thank you both for joining me today and providing such great insights. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. If you'd like to learn more about anything mentioned in today's conversation, head to our website at www.monoropartners.com.au.